right, everybody can turn in their Bible to Genesis chapter 28. We've been coming through the book of Genesis together, and we're at Genesis 28 today. There should be a study guide going around that says uh, the passage we're in at the top. Anybody not have one of those? Maybe in the back? Okay. Got a few back there. If you don't mind taking some of those back, that'd be helpful. Can everybody hear me okay? Can you hear me, Eric? Take some time to pray. Lord, we bow down to you. And just like we sang a moment ago, we want to adore you and bow before you and scream from our hearts that Christ is Lord. You're Lord. Lord, thank you for your word. Thank you so much for your word. Please help us this morning as we come to this, which you said is breathed out by you. You said it's living and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword. You said it's like a fire and like a hammer that breaks the rock in pieces. God, we come to your word. Have your way with us, Lord. Holy Spirit, whatever you want us to see, let us see it. Lead us, Lord, to heights of worship. Lead us to obedience and service to you, Lord. Lead us through your word. You're the chief shepherd of this flock. Lord, thank you for being the chief shepherd of this flock. Thank you for leading us, Lord. Thank you for guiding us. And God, you made it known to us that you do that through your word. So God, we ask for that this morning. We're your people, Lord. We come before you, the sheep of your pasture. Speak, O Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, let me, um, let me try to remind us of where we are just in the context before we begin to read this passage, I'll just say a few things to remind us where we are in the book of Genesis. So Isaac and Rebecca, uh, thank you. <laughs> Isaac and Rebecca have two sons. Remember their two sons are Esau and Jacob, the older son Esau, the younger son Jacob. Esau and Jacob's relationship is on the rocks say the least. Jacob thus far has taken his birthright. Jacob has deceitfully stolen Esau's blessing, and therefore Esau wants to murder Esau wants to murder his younger brother. I know I've mentioned this a few times, but I can't help but say it here. Uh, our brother, if you remember the story of our brother Ravi and how he first came to the Bible, just I can't help but think about it this, this spot. And how he first came to the Bible looking for advice from God, he wasn't a Christian at the time, about relationships. 
and he ran into stuff like this, this dysfunctional family. And he eventually saw that this Bible was about Christ, not mainly about um, good relationships being put before us. And so here we've got Esau and Jacob not doing well. Esau wants to murder his brother. And as we've been talking about through Genesis, God has a plan that through this dysfunctional family, uh, God is going to bring about his Messiah. And nothing, absolutely nothing can thwart this plan. Weaved all into these stories, these records of history, is sin and deceivers, deceitfulness and greed and wickedness, all weaved in to these stories. And yet nothing can thwart the plan of God. What's being, be what's being put before us is a God that even sin and deceivers bow down to His ultimate will without even realizing it. So God's going to bring about His plan. He's going to bring about His Messiah. And so as I said, Esau, Esau, the older son, is flaming mad at Jacob. He's angry at him and desires to kill him. And so his plan is as soon as our father dies, as soon as Isaac passes on, I'm killing him. I'm going to murder him. Well, Rebecca, the mother, the mama, she overhears this plan. And she overhears and discovers this plan. She begins to develop a plan to save Jacob, the younger son. She wants to save him. And so she's going to use that situation with the, whole, the pagan wife thing. Remember that? You read in Genesis 26 and Genesis 27 that Esau, the older, older brother, took on two pagan wives. And, and it said it brought much bitterness to Isaac and Rebekah. So she's going to use that situation and present it to Isaac in such a way that maybe he will send Jacob away so he won't be murdered by his brother. So we can read that if you look at chapter 27, verse 46. Then Rebekah said to Isaac, I loathe my life because of the Hittite women. If Jacob marries one of the Hittite women like these, one of the women of the land, what good will my life be to me? So she suggests this to Isaac, hoping that Isaac will send Jacob away to get a wife from their homeland and not from this pagan land. And of course, the plan's going to work. And that brings us to Genesis 28. The plan is actually going to work. So we're going to take Genesis chapter 28 in four sections. We're going to take it in four sections, as you see there on your study guide. And number one is going to be verses 1 through 5. We're about to read it together. What you're going to see here is Isaac is going to send Jacob away with a blessing and with direction. With blessing and with direction. Let's read it together. Chapter 28, verse 1. Then Isaac called Jacob and blessed him and directed him. You must not take a wife from the Canaanite women. Arise. Go to Paddan Aram, to the house of Bethuel, the, your mother's father, and take as your wife from there one of the daughters of Laban, your mother's brother. God Almighty bless you and make you fruitful and multiply you, that you may become a company of peoples. May He give the blessing of Abraham to you and to your offspring with you, that you may take possession of the land of your sojournings that God gave to Abraham. Thus Isaac sent Jacob away, and he went to Paddan Aram, to Laban, 
the son of Bethuel, the Aramean, the brother of Rebekah, Jacob, and Esau's mother. So I want you to notice in verse 1 we see blessing and direction. It says it there in verse 1. Isaac called Jacob, and he blessed him, and he directed him. So he gave him a blessing, and he gave him direction. He gave him a, he gave, Isaac gave Jacob a blessing to believe and, and direction to obey. He gave him something to believe and something to go do, something to obey. Now, the direction comes first. We see that in verse 1 and 2. The direction that he gives is, I don't want you to marry one of these Hittite women like your brother. I want you to go back to our original homeland. I want you to go back there and get a wife from there. So that's the direction. He sends him, he sends him away. He tells him he wants him to obey that. So Jacob does obey, and he goes back. Now the blessing, he enters into it in verse 3. God Almighty bless you. If you keep reading in verse 3 and verse 4, what we see is this, is this is again the land promise and the seed promise. You read this, he says, May God bless you. May you become a company of peoples. We're talking about Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob and their lineage becoming a nation called Israel. So there's this seed promise that they're going to become a nation, and through that nation is going to come a Christ that's going to bless all nations. It's referring back to that same seed promise we've been talking about through Genesis. It also refers to that land promise that this place, I'm going to bring you back to this land, and that, that nation that I'm going to raise up through you is going to have this land. So just like we've been talking about, a seed promise and a land promise in this blessing. Now, this is the first time that Isaac voluntarily blesses Jacob. He blessed him in the previous chapter, but remember, he thought he was blessing Esau. He was deceived. And so what does this mean? Well, you know, he's, we heard in chapter 27 how he began to violently tremble as if he realized that he had gone against God. Maybe this is his turn. Maybe this is him turning back, and now he's voluntarily agreeing with God about who will be a part of that messianic lineage so he's for the first time he's voluntarily blessing Jacob now notice the connection in these words to Abraham you see it in verse 4 may he give the blessing of Abraham to you and to your offspring with you that you may take possession of the land of your sojournings that God gave to Abraham so may he give you the blessing of Abraham this was spoken about in Genesis chapter 12, verse 1 through 3. This is spoken about in Genesis 15 and 17 and 22, 18. This blessing of Abraham, that Abraham through you is going to come a nation Israel, and through that nation is going to come a Messiah. And in your seed, that seed who is Christ, is going to, is going to be the Christ who blesses all nations. It's going to bring about a remnant from all nations. And so this is the blessing of Abraham that's been passed on to Isaac, his son. And then now Isaac is passing it on to Jacob, his son. And so when we read these words, when we read these blessings, we need to realize that something bigger is happening here. It's bigger than just this family. It's bigger than Abraham, bigger than Isaac, bigger than even the nation of Israel. But it's about a seed that's coming to bless all nations. What we should be seeing in this, this seed promise. And so the direction is given. Go back and get a wife from our original homeland. And the blessing is given. This blessing of Abraham. And it says here in verse 5 that Jacob is sent away. He's sent away. 
So thus far, Jacob has heard the blessing and the promise from his father unintentionally as he gave that blessing thinking it was going to Esau. And he's also heard this blessing and this promise from his father intentionally and voluntarily as he gives it to him right here before he sends him back to Haran. But what's coming up is Jacob is about to hear it from God himself. He's about to meet God and hear this blessing, hear this promise from God himself. But before we get there, we've got something here about Esau. That brings us to the second part of this passage, verse 6 to 9, verses 6 through 9, we see Esau tries to make things right, sort of. Let's read it. Now Esau saw that Isaac had blessed Jacob and sent him away to Paran Aram to take a wife from there, and that as he blessed him, he directed him. You must not take a wife from the Canaanite women. And that Jacob had obeyed his father and his mother and gone to Padan Aram. So, when Esau saw that the Canaanite women did not please Isaac, his father, Esau went to Ishmael and took as his wife, besides the wives he had, Mahalath, the daughter of Ishmael, Abraham's son, the sister of Naboth. So what do we see here? We see it in verse 6, that Esau saw something. He over heard what was happening. And it says he saw the blessing and the direction that was attached to it. He heard the blessing given to believe, and he saw the direction, the directions given to obey, and he saw that Jacob obeyed. So he, he overheard this stuff. He saw the blessing, and he saw the direction. So how does Esau respond? How does Esau respond to this blessing and this direction that he overheard. Now, I want you to think about it for a minute. Think about what he just heard. He just heard the blessing of Abraham, which Galatians 3.8 says is the gospel. This is gospel truth about Jesus. Now, we'll, we'll go read that and talk about that in just a little bit. But what Esau just heard was the blessing of Abraham, gospel truth about Jesus. That's what he just heard. And what's his response? What does he do? Oh, I need a third wife. I need a wife from Ishmael. That's what I need. That's his response to hearing the blessing of, of, of Abraham here. He totally misses the point. Notice Esau. Everything that we've already talked about Esau. Notice Esau does not say, I need to repent of my flippant attitude towards these messianic promises. No, I need, to, I need to, you know, that direction he gave. I missed the blessing, but that direction he gave, I, I need, I need a, a third wife. That's what I need. Totally misses the point. So he has a, a sort of uh, a pseudo-religious pseudo response, but it's not the response of true faith. Esau does not respond in true faith. And, I, and as I thought about this, I thought about how lost people tend to do this. You ever been around that where maybe you, Maybe last Sunday you brought a lost person to the church meeting and they're listening to Dustin preach Genesis 27 and they're hearing about the scandalous grace of God found in Christ Jesus, glorious gospel put forward to us and you walk out the back doors and they say, what do you think the scripture says about aliens? You're like, seriously? 
You just heard that blessing of Abraham. You just heard gospel truth. And this is your response. This is what's on your mind. Lost people tend to do this. Totally miss the, miss the point. You know, we've talked a lot in this church about the book of Ephesians. And how it's laid out in two major sections. The chapters 1 through 3 is what Christ has accomplished, what Christ has done. And chapters 4 through 6 is the outflow of that, of what He commands us to do. That The first three chapters have only one command, and then the last three chapters have 50-something commands. So the idea here is, here's what Christ has done, and here's what Christ commands us to do. Here's the blessing. It even says that in Ephesians 1. Every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Chapters 1 through 3, theology, doctrine, look at Christ. And in chapters 4 through 6, this is the obedience. Do this, don't do that, do this, don't do that. And what do lost people tend to do? They tend to run in a pseudo-religious way towards the commands of the latter half of that book and be bored with the first half. Bored with the theology, bored with the blessing, bored with the gospel. But yeah, I can be religious. What do you want me to do and not do? And I feel like Esau here is such a good picture of that. We used to call that the latter half saints. Latter half saints. Now, Esau's life, I believe, is very informative to us as it relates to understanding false repentance. We can look at Esau's life, and I think it's important that we understand this. We can understand false repentance. Repentance. Now, there's some ways we've already talked about that. We've already discussed that coming through Genesis. So, for example, Esau knew the truth. He sat under Abraham and Isaac. He understood the truth. But knowing the truth is not repentance. He's bored with the messianic promise. He's willing to give it up for a bowl of soup, we heard earlier in Genesis. And so, knowing the truth, understanding is not repentance. Another thing that we understand from Esau's life, that being sorrowful is not necessarily repentance. Even weeping over things, even weeping and crying is not necessarily repentance. Hebrews 12 tells us that, that this man Esau wept. He literally wept over what had happened, and yet he never found repentance. 2 Corinthians 7, verse 9, 10, 11, 12, and that here speaks about a godly sorrow that leads to repentance and a worldly sorrow that never leads to repentance. Sorrow and weeping does not equal repentance. There can be a false repentance, though there's weeping and though there's knowledge. Well, here I think you can see another thing. In addition to that, false repentance, hear me out, in Esau's life we see it, false repentance is mainly horizontal and not vertical. It's mainly horizontal and not vertical. Think about the difference in Esau in verse 8. Look at it. So when Esau saw that the Canaanite women did not please Isaac, his father, he's worried on this horizontal realm. It doesn't please my father. Now compare that to David in Psalm 51. David, when he sins against God in adultery and murder with Bathsheba, and he looks at God and he says, God, against you and you alone have I sinned. See, one sorrow and and turn is horizontal, Esau, and the other one is vertical. So we learn something about false repentance. False repentance is mainly horizontal. It never makes it vertical that you have offended God. I was talking to a friend this week that had told me that that he had walked in drunkenness and drunkenness and, and drunkenness over and over. But he said, but I turned away from that because I knew it was going to kill me. 
See, he turned away from it because of the earthly consequence. And I began to encourage this friend that that's not repentance. Have you turned away from your drunkenness because you spit in the face of God Almighty? That he gave the command and you said, I don't care what you say. False repentance is horizontal, not vertical. And I think it's really helpful for us as we think about our own lives. We do self-examination. Are we repentant before God throughout our lives? And also as we help the world, we help the world come to Christ. It's helpful for us to understand these, these pictures of false repentance. Now let's go to that third section. Verse 10 through 17, we see Jacob meets God. Jacob meets God. Let's read it together. Verse 10 through 17. Jacob left Beersheba and went to Haran. And he came to a certain place and stayed there that night because the sun had set. Taking one of the stones of the place, he put it under his head and laid down in that place to sleep. And he dreamed. And behold, there was a ladder set up on, on the earth and, and the top of it reached to heaven. And behold, the angels of God were ascending and descending on it. And behold, the Lord stood above it and said, I am the Lord, the God of Abraham your father and the God of Isaac. The land on which you lie I will give to you and to your offspring. Your offspring shall be like the dust of the earth, and you shall spread abroad to the west and to the east and to the north and to the south. And in you and in your offspring shall all the families of the earth be blessed. Behold, I'm with you, and I'll keep you wherever you go, and I'll bring you back to this land, for I'll not leave you until I've done what I have promised you. Then Jacob awoke from his sleep and said, Surely the Lord is in this place, and I did not know it. And he was afraid and said, How awesome is this place! This is none other than the house of God, and this is the gate of heaven. So what we have in verse 10 and 11, where Jacob meets God here, is Jacob's on his way back to where his father and mother sent him. And on his way, it, the sun goes down, he gets tired, he takes up a stone for a pillow, and he lays on it and goes to sleep. So we see him there asleep in verse 10 through 11. And then verse 12 through 15, he has this intense dream. This really intense dream. Now what did he see in his dream? What did he see? And the language is given to us in verse 12 and 13 that shows us what he saw the language given to us is, is helping us see how this dream unfolded in his mind. Behold, it says. And then again, behold. And then again it says, behold. So what did he see? How did it unfold in his mind? Behold, this ladder or this uh, stairway or staircase might be a way to think about it. This stairway that began on earth and reached to the top of the heavens. And he sees it. And then he says, behold, angels are ascending and descending on this ladder, on this stairway. And then the third behold, behold, the Lord stands there. There's the Lord. And then God speaks. So try to imagine what he saw in his dream. 
glorious, amazing. It's, ama- it's amazing to him. It's awesome to him, it says here. And then what does he hear? What does he hear from God? What does God say to Jacob in this dream? And I'll, and I'll break up very quickly what God said in four parts. Break up what God said here in four parts. You can see it in verse 13 through 15. First, first God introduces Himself. We see it in verse 13. Look at it. And behold, the Lord stood above it and said, I am the Lord, the God of Abraham your father and the God of Isaac. So God introduces Himself. I'm the God of Abraham your grandfather and Isaac your father. That's me. I'm revealing myself to you. Jacob's about to move from granddaddy said and daddy said to God Himself has revealed Himself to me. So God introduces Himself. And then in verse, the second half of verse 13, we see, number two, the land promise. God speaks to him the land promise. It says it here, in the middle of verse 13, the land on which you lie I will give to you and to your offspring. That land, he gives them the land promise. He affirms it again. We're hearing this over and over again. That land, the nation of Israel that's going to come from you is going to possess this land. And then in verse 14, number 3, we see the seed promise again. Look at it in verse 14, the seed promise. Very, very similar to what we read in Genesis 12, in Genesis 26. Listen. Your offspring shall be like the dust of the earth, and you shall spread abroad to the west, to the east, to the north, to the south, and in you and your offspring shall all the families of the earth be blessed. So he gives this seed promise. Now listen, I want you to understand. Let's just spend a little bit more time on this part of what God says is seed promise. This is gospel truth. This is, listen, Jacob. Through you is coming one. Through your lineage is going to bless all nations. Go with me. Hold your place and go with me to Galatians. I referenced it a moment ago. But I want us to read this in Galatians chapter 3. Galatians chapter 3. Let's sit on this seed promise for just a moment. Galatians 3 verse 8. Try to understand this. Listen. And the Scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith. What did the Scripture foresee? God's going to justify the nations by faith. The Scripture, foreseeing that, preached the gospel. Preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying... Saying, in you shall all the nations be blessed. Did you catch that? Then when Abraham heard in Genesis 12, 3, Abraham, in your seed, all nations shall be blessed. And when Isaac heard in in Genesis 26, 4, in you all the nations of the earth shall be blessed. And when when Jacob heard the same, Isaac heard it, and when Jacob heard it in our chapter today, in you all the nations of the earth shall be blessed, that they're hearing gospel truth. That this is about a Christ that's to come. Look down at verse, still in Galatians 3, verse 16. Now, the promises, which we've been talking about in Genesis, now the promises 
were made to Abraham and to his offspring, it does not say, and to offsprings, referring to many, but referring to one, and to your offspring, who is Christ. These promises that we're reading are about Christ, the offspring from Abraham, the offspring from Isaac, from Jacob, from the nation of Israel, that would bless all nations, that would justify the nations by faith. So what God is bringing to Jacob here is beautiful, beautiful gospel truth that he's already spoken to his father and also to his grandfather. Now, if you trace those promises through Genesis, you realize that God promises the blessing of the nations and the bowing of the nations. In the last chapter, when, when Isaac blessed Jacob unintentionally, you go back and read it, remember Dustin highlighted this, that he said, all the peoples will serve you and bow down. You go to Genesis 49, and when this promise gets passed on to Judah, he says to Judah, to you, Judah, shall be the obedience of the peoples, of the nations. So what's going to happen? This seed's going to come. This seed is Christ, and he's going to bless all nations and bow all nations. They're going to be blessed with justification by faith in Christ, and they're going to bow down to him as king from all the nations. Now, what do we mean by all nations? What do we mean by all nations? Do we mean, you know, all of the 200 or so uh, countries on your map? Yes, but more than that. More than that. Here's why I say that. In our passage today, Genesis 28, verse 14, it says, In you and in your offspring shall all the families of the earth be blessed. The word used here in 28.14 is, In you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Now, if you, if you trace the promise, Genesis 12.3, He said to Abraham, In you all the families shall be blessed. In 22.18 to Abraham, it says, In you all the nations shall be blessed. In 26.4 to Isaac, in you all the nations shall be blessed. And here with Jacob it says, in you all the families shall be blessed. Now if you study that out, tease it out a little bit, I think what you come to is that what what is Christ going to do? He's going to bless all what? He's going to have all what bowing down to Him. What? It's not just 200 countries that you see on your map, but we're talking about people groups. That people make estimates, and they're just estimates, that there are 12,000 people groups on planet Earth. There can be hundreds or even thousands of people groups within a certain country. This is people group type language. I would encourage you to grab, if you want to study that further, grab Let the Nations Be Glad by John Piper. And he has a couple chapters devoted to what this nations or families means. And I would encourage you to dig into that. But here's what I want to say. I want you to see how beautiful this is. How beautiful is this? That beginning in the book of Genesis, Jesus will bless a remnant from every people group on the planet. All 12,000 or 18,000, however you number them, all the people groups on the planet will receive justification by faith. There will be a remnant from every people group. That there will be a remnant from every people group that will bow down to Christ as Lord. That's beautiful, it's glorious, and it's what's being passed to Jacob in Genesis 28, verse 14. Now I mentioned what God says in the dream, I mentioned four things. He introduces himself, he mentions the land promise, he mentions the seed promise, 
And then number four, fourthly, he proclaims his faithfulness. I love the way this verse lays out God's faithfulness. Look at verse 15. Behold, I'm with you and will keep you wherever you go and I'll bring you back to this land. Listen, for I will not leave you until I've done what I have promised you. Isn't that beautiful? God says, I will not leave you until I have done, until I've accomplished exactly what I've said to you, exactly what I've promised you. Because God is always faithful to His Word. Has He, not, has he said it and we not do it? Has He spoken it and we not bring it to pass? God's not a man that He should lie. He's not unfaithful like humanity. He's a faithful God that always does His Word every single time. Not one of His words have ever fallen to the ground. Always accomplished. And He tells them this here. The faithfulness of God. He tells them, I will not leave you until I've done what I have promised you. Now, Jacob's going to respond. Jacob has this intense dream. Verse 12 through 15. Now he's going to, what's his immediate response when he wakes up? We see his response in verse 16 and 17. Then Jacob awoke from his sleep and said, try to imagine his response, immediate response. He wakes up, surely the Lord is in this place and I did not know it. And he was afraid. And he said, how awesome is this place? This is none other than the house of God. This is the gate of heaven. Is there anything in that verse that doesn't seem to go together to you? He just said, it just said that he was afraid. What's his response to the presence of God? He is afraid, it says. And he said, how awesome! That doesn't fit, does it? When you're afraid, do you say, awesome! But he's afraid, and he says, how awesome! He's afraid, and yet he's just, this is the house of God, this is the gate of heaven. He's trembling, and yet he's, he's rejoicing at the same time. You know, when you read the Bible and you look at the way people respond to the presence of God, it speaks a lot about God. If you can notice in the Bible, when God just reveals Himself, the way people respond tell you a lot about God. Revelation chapter 1 John gets a revelation of Jesus Christ, the glorified Jesus Christ that he walked with on planet earth. And when Jesus shows up, it says John falls on his face as if dead. And as he's on his face, the one who holds the stars in his hands, it says, let's go to the stars and puts a hand on his shoulder. and says, don't be afraid. So in that moment, John is experiencing in the presence of Jesus Fear in such a way that he falls on his face as if dead, and yet comfort and rejoicing that this is the one that laid his hand on me and said, do not be afraid. It's a beautiful picture. We see it in Jacob here, that Jacob is afraid, and yet, oh, this is awesome. He's afraid, and yet he's awestruck. This tells you something about God. I want you to think about this for just a moment. Every Christian in the room, if you're a Christian, the most terrifying moment of your life will be when you see God. And the most comforting and happiest moment of your life will be when you see God. 
And these two things are going to be slammed together because of who this God is. Here's the phrase that's given in Psalm 2.11. It says, rejoice with trembling. It's both. You'll come before God who is the great glorious God before whom Moses shakes and bows down and Jacob shakes and trembles and bows down and John shakes and trembles and bows down. He's that God. And He's the God of glorious grace before whom you rejoice and find great comfort. And those intensities of those feelings will slam together when you see Him face to face. And we see this here. We see this here with Jacob. Now, let's go to the fourth section. We're going to see in verse 18 through 22, Jacob's response to God the following morning. So the sun comes up. What's his, what's his response going to be to this revelation? Let's read it. Verse 18. So early in the morning, Jacob took the stone that he had put under his head and he set it up for a pillar and poured oil on the top of it. He called the name of that place Bethel, but the name of the city was Luz at the first. Then Jacob made a vow saying, If God will be with me and will keep me in the way that I go and will give me bread to eat and clothing to wear so that I come again to my father's house in peace, then the Lord shall be my God. And this stone which I've set up for a pillar shall be God's house. And of all that you give me, I will give a full tenth to you. So how does Jacob respond the following morning? How does he respond? The stone pillow that he had becomes the stone pillar. This worship, as he sets up this memorial on this stone, as he pours the oil on this stone, and he's worshiping God by setting up a memorial stone. So his response is that he worships. He names the place Bethel. This is the house of God. This is where God dwells. So he's worshiping God through this memorial stone and through naming this place. What's his response? He worships God. And then it says that he worships God through a vow. He makes a vow to God. We see it in verse 20 through 22. Verse 20 through 22, he makes a vow to God. Now what does this vow mean? Now, I believe many have made the mistake of seeing this vow as some sort of ultimatum. Like Jacob said, if you, and you just kind of glance at it, if you uh, protect me and be with me, and if you keep me, and if you bring me back to this place, then you'll be my God. And that's the way people have read this, like it's some sort of ultimatum that he's bringing before God. But the language doesn't force you into that, and the context is drastically against that. Can you imagine that? Here he is. He's all struck before God. He's worshiping, he's fearful, he's rejoicing. He's he's saying, this this is the house of God, this is Bethel. He's pouring the oil out on the rock, and then the next words out of his mouth are, you know, if you do, say God. Sure, I'll follow you. That's not what this is saying. This is him worshiping God through a vow. Here's what's happening here. He heard God's promise. Remember what God said to him. I'll sum it up like this. God said, I'm with you, I'll keep you, and I'll bring you back. He heard God's promise, and Jacob is astounded by God's grace. And his response is to repeat that back to God. Oh, Lord, if you're with me, 
And if you're, you're going to continue to be with me and keep me, and if you're going to bring me back, then you are my God. It's worship to the Lord. This is, a, this is an act of worship. Matthew Henry interprets it like this. Instead of if, he says seeing. Uh, God gave the promise. Jacob's astounded at the grace of God. And, 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 and Matthew Henry translates it, seeing that you are going to be with me and, and you're going to keep me and you're going to bring me back, then you are my God. You are my God. He's worshiping God through this vow. He's gripped. But you think about it that way. God gave the promise. He repeats it back to God. He is gripped by the grace of God. Why would God do such a thing as this? Why would He be so gracious? He's gripped by the grace of God. And Him being gripped by the grace of God not only, not only puts Him in a place where He begins to put Himself under God, then the Lord shall be my God. Not only does, does being gripped by the grace of God lead Him to that, but it also takes this stingy, inheritance-grabbing, deceitful man, and it loosens his grips, his grip on the things of this world. You see what it says after that in verse 22? Not only does he say, the Lord will be my God, he says, in everything you give, I give it back. Everything you give, he says, in all that you give me, I give a full tenth to you. Being gripped by the grace of God loosens our grips on the things of this world. You see that? You could compare Jacob, I believe fairly, you could compare Jacob to Zacchaeus here. Remember Zacchaeus? Luke 19, verse 1 through 10. Zacchaeus, come down out of the tree. I'm going to eat with you today. He eats with him. Zacchaeus stands up and says, I, Jesus, I give half of my things, half of my goods to the poor. And anybody that I've done wrong, I'll pay them back fourfold. Jesus says, Jesus says, salvation's come to this house today. <laughs> that man was gripped by the grace of God in such a way that it loosened his grip on the things of this world. And he says, I give it all away, I give it all back. The Lord is my God. And I give away a full tenth of everything you give me. Beautiful picture here. Now I want us to talk about in clothing. Now I do want to, it's closing I want to talk about in closing, and I want to sit here for just a moment, about this beautiful truth that's written there at the bottom of your study guide. And here's this beautiful truth. I believe we studied Genesis 28, we read Genesis 28, and here's a beautiful truth we need to walk away with, okay? Heaven has been open to sinful man. Heaven has been open to sinful man. Let me try to explain that, okay? As I said, Jacob is absolutely astounded. He he sees the staircase from earth to heaven into God's presence. He sees the Lord at the top preaching gospel truth about Jesus. God's opened the way. He's opened heaven to sinful man. Now I say that, I hope you understand what I'm referring to. That the, he sees this, this staircase to heaven that angels are descending and us ascending on. And, and when I say he sees the Lord preaching gospel truth about Jesus, it's because verse 14, in you all the nations shall be blessed, which Galatians 3.8 tells us is gospel truth. And then his response when he sees all of that, when he sees the stairway, the ladder to heaven, and he sees the Lord preaching the gospel truth about Jesus, his response in verse 17 is what? 
This is the gate of heaven. Whoa. He says, this is the gate of heaven. Where have I found myself just now? This is the gate of heaven. But listen, Jacob is so sinful. He's so sinful. He's not seeking God in Genesis 28. In fact, he's facing the consequences of his deceit and his blasphemy and his greed. And he's sitting in the consequences of his sin. He's not seeking God. He's a sinful, wicked, deceitful man. And yet what we see here is God gives grace to the ungodly. (laughs) That He opens heaven for sinful man. He gives grace to the ungodly. Here's the way I want you to understand it. Heaven has been closed to humanity because of sin. Heaven's been closed to humanity because of sin. Think about Genesis 3. They sin against God and they're removed from God's presence. They're removed from the Garden of Eden. Isaiah 59.2 says your sin has separated you from God. Separated you. Your iniquity has hidden His face from you so that He will not hear you. Our sin has closed the door to heaven. But through Christ... Here we see the Lord standing at the top of the staircase that goes to heaven, preaching gospel truth about Jesus. Through Christ, heaven is open for sinful humanity, for all that will come through Christ. There's an old hymn. Listen to this old hymn. As Jacob, with travel, was weary one day, at night on a stone for a pillow he lay. He saw in a vision a ladder so high that its foot was on earth and its top in the sky. So it gives us this picture of what we just read, what he, just, what he saw. And then listen to the refrain, the, the very next line. Listen to the connection the hymn writer makes. He says, Hallelujah to Jesus who died on the tree and has raised up a ladder of mercy for me. Hallelujah to Jesus who died on the tree and raised up a ladder of mercy for me. Did you hear that connection? Between Jacob's ladder with Jacob's vision and Jesus who's crucified and raised up a ladder of mercy for us all. Now, is that a good connection to make in this hymn? Did he make that up or is that a faithful, biblical connection to make? Go with me to John chapter 1. In John chapter 1, I want to read something to you about a disciple of Christ named Nathaniel. If you begin in verse 43, John 1, 43, it speaks about this man, Nathaniel, and how Philip took Nathaniel and he brought Nathaniel to Jesus. Remember this story? So he brings Nathaniel to Jesus. And as he's walking up to Jesus, look at verse 47. Jesus saw Nathanael coming toward him and said, Behold, an Israelite indeed in whom there is no deceit. Now I wonder, am I supposed to be thinking about Jacob? Jacob who was named Israel? Jacob whose name means stealer and deceiver? 
And, and he looks at this man, Nathaniel, and he says, an Israelite in whom there's no deceit. Am I supposed to be thinking about Jacob? And then you keep reading, and Jesus looks at him, and then the following verses, and he says, uh, Nathaniel, because Nathaniel says, how do you know me? And Jesus says, Nathaniel, when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. So Jesus begins to flex his omniscience and say, I saw you, I know where you've been, and I've seen you. I'm sitting here in a human body, but I know exactly where you've been, Nathaniel. And Jesus flexes his omniscience before Nathaniel and the disciples. Now, after he flexes his omniscience, look with me at verse 49. Verse, excuse me, verse 48. Nathaniel said to him, How do you know me? Jesus answered him, Before Philip called you when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. And Nathaniel answered him. Here's Nathaniel's response to Jesus' omniscience. He says, Rabbi, you're the Son of God, you're the King of Israel. And Jesus answered him, Because I said to you, I saw you under the fig tree, do you believe? You will see greater things than these. Really? Like what? Like, like uh, he just told Nathaniel, You're going to see greater things than the fact that I'm over here in a human body, but I know everywhere you've been. And everything you've said, everything you've thought, that I'm the omniscient one in a human body, but I'm going to show you something greater than that. Like what? What what are you going to show me greater than that? And look at verse 51. And he said to him, Truly, truly, I say to you, you will see heaven opened and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. And he points them back to Genesis 28 and that ladder that angels ascend and descend upon. And he says, here's what you're going to see. You're going to see heaven open and I'm the ladder. I'm the staircase that angels ascend and descend on. I'm that staircase. I'm the staircase to heaven. I'm the ladder to heaven. I'm the connection between heaven and earth. He tells Nathaniel and all his disciples here, beautiful truth. Now, he, he uses the phrase in, in verse 51, the Son of Man. He says, you'll see the angels ascending and descending upon, he doesn't say the latter, but he says, the Son of Man. And why does he use the phrase, the Son of Man? That phrase, the Son of Man, is coming out of Daniel chapter 7. And in Daniel chapter 7, this, the phrase, Son of Man, is used to describe this person. The Son of God who descended from heaven to earth who lived a perfect life that you didn't live, who died a death in your place, was crucified for you, absorbed the wrath of God for you, who through three days later rose from the dead, ascended on high, and Daniel 7 says, this man came before the Ancient of Days, the one that descended from heaven to earth, ascended from earth to heaven, came before the Ancient of Days, and what did the Ancient of Days give him? It says a kingdom of peoples from all nations. And you begin to think back to Genesis 28. What does he see? He sees a ladder that goes from earth to heaven and God Himself standing at the top preaching about one who would come, the Messiah, who would bless all nations and all nations would bow to Him. Jesus tells them here, that's me. I'm the ladder. 
I'm the staircase. I'm the Son of Man. Or, to use Jacob's word, Jesus says, I'm the gate of heaven. I'm the doorway in. Now, last thing I want to say is there's a real miracle in this, in this passage. In, not, not John 1. Well, yes, John 1, but in Genesis 28. There's a real miracle there. And, and the miracle is not so much the dream, as miraculous as that was, but the real miracle here is what happened with Jacob. I want you to think about that for just a minute. God took a man like Jacob, a deceitful man that, that invoked God's name in order to deceive his blind daddy. And he took that man and he made him a trembling worshiper before God. You see that miracle? God just humbled a prideful man. That is miraculous. God just took an inheritance, a greedy inheritance grabber and made him a man ready to give it away. He just changed this man. He just did a work in this man. It's an absolute miracle. He took a man that was bored with messianic promises and made him a believer. And the encouraging, you know, that miracle has happened. And, and here's, here's a good takeaway for us. Look around the room. Miracles have happened all over this room. That God has done the exact same thing. And it's beautiful. That God has taken, I, I've, I've set my eyes, even as I'm looking at you now, on, on drug addicts has come to Christ. On drunkards has turned away from Him and put their hope in Christ. He's their treasure. I've got my eyes right now on self-righteous Pharisees. And false converts that God converted to Christ. People that were bored with the gospel that love it and can't get enough of it. Look at the miracle. Look what God has done. Taking greedy people all over this room that only care about the love of money and made you put it all away and put your, all, all your love toward Christ. God's brought salvation in this room. He's opened heaven for sinful humanity. And all who come to Christ can come in. Let's pray. Lord, thank you so much again for your word. Thank you, Lord. Lord, thank you for Christ. Lord Jesus Christ, you are our King. You've blessed us. Thank you for making us a part of that all nations people that are blessed with justification of faith in Christ and are bowed down to you because you are our king. Thank you, Lord, for making us a part of that people. And Lord, as I look across at my brothers and sisters all over this room, Lord, you've done mighty works. Lord, you've done miraculous things. And Lord, I pray that you would fill our hearts with worship like you did with Jacob. Fill us with worship, Lord. That we'd pour ourselves out for you. That we'd continually own you as our God. You are ours. We belong to you, Lord. That we would have a loose grip on the things of this world. That we'd be gripped by glorious grace. God, continue to work that in us more and more. Thank you, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen.